Hello and welcome to Business Unmuted, a business discussion broadcast live on LinkedIn and available for download from all the best podcast sites. As ever, Business Unmuted is sponsored by Virtue BMW, which is part of Gateshead-based Virtue Motors PLC. So if you're in the market for a new used or fleet vehicle, its dealerships are in Stockton, Durham, Sunderland, Moulton or York. Now, today's programme is recorded with nobody joining me in the studio because I'm semi-self-isolating. Now, it's not that I've tested positive for COVID, COVID, more that I'm determined to test negative for my fit to fly test next week because I'm going to the USA to see my daughter at last. A combination of the tough US travel restrictions until November last year and some health problems at her end have kept us apart for over two years. And in that time, she's got married and I was father of the bride via Zoom. So needless to say, I'm really looking forward to the trip. And like many people going on business trips, I'm submarining to avoid catching Omicron. When I'm away next week, the programme will be hosted by my old friend Mike Hughes, the business editor of The Northern Echo. Now, let's turn to my guests today. The respected UK chief economist Julian Jessup will be joining me in a few minutes, together with Ian Henderson of Boiler Plan UK and Anthony Chadwick, the founder and chief visionary officer of Alpha Vet International. But first, Businesses in all sectors have been hit by high energy costs and energy prices have still got a bit of a way to climb as well. One of the reasons is the international tension in Eastern Europe and the Ukraine. Last week, the former Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon gave a talk to representatives of business in North East England about the issue and afterwards he joined me for this short interview. I'm joined by the former Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, to talk about the situation in Ukraine. We'll talk about why this matters in a minute. But first, Sir Michael, can you just tell us about the geography and the uh, way in which uh, the contested space is lining up? Sure. Well, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is there at the north of the uh, Black Sea. Um, it was originally part of the Soviet Union, uh, but uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, it's been independent, sovereign. It's, uh, it's a democracy. Russia has claimed back uh, Crimea and is encouraging the rebels in Luhansk and Donetsk, two of the uh, provinces in what is called the Donbass region. For, uh, eight years ago, Russia seized Crimea and since then it's built a bridge across the Kirsch Strait here, almost sealing off the Sea of Azov here and blocking access to uh, Ukraine's key ports of Mariupol and Berdyansk. Uh, a lot of Ukraine industry is concentrated down here. It's where the coal is, it's where the iron and steel making is. Uh, so it's an important part of the Ukrainian economy. Uh, and Russia now has, uh, has ambitions to reincorporate the whole of Ukraine back into Russia. As Defence Secretary, you initiated uh, UK policy on this. Uh, how has UK policy developed up until now? Well, once um, when Putin uh, invaded Crimea and encouraged the insurrection in the Donbass, we immediately agreed to help Ukraine. We helped Ukraine with uh, training. I sent troops there to train the Ukrainian army who are taking heavy casualties. Some 13,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in the last uh, eight years. And we have been supplying various forms of, of equipment, uh, mainly defensive equipment and other weaponry to help them resist 
the kind of aggression they've seen from Russia. So we've been doing that for eight years now. It's been stepped up. There is more help to the Ukrainian Navy, and we're now supplying them with anti-tank weapons. But it's going to be very difficult for Ukraine to resist a full-scale invasion. Let's put this in a geopolitical context and an economic context. Why is this what is effectively a regional uh, conflict so important to the rest of the world and Europe? Well, it's important because um, if uh, Putin gets away with this, if Russia gets away with this, then no other country in Europe is is completely safe. Russia could then start laying claim to uh, to Georgia, to uh, Moldova, to part of Moldova, and could get away with moving troops all along the, the frontier with uh, NATO, and uh, could indeed de- endanger the Baltic states. So it's very important the West uh, stand up to this. It also matters for our economy. A lot of this is about energy. And one of the reasons we're seeing high energy prices at the moment is, is because too many countries in Europe are dependent on Russian gas. Ukraine is very dependent on Russian gas, earns a lot of money from the transit of Russian gas through Ukraine, which is why the proposal to uh, develop the Nord Stream pipeline, the second pipeline, direct from Russia to Germany, could be very, very damaging to Ukraine because Ukraine would then lose the transit fees from grass and become even more dependent on Russia itself. So Ukraine has a double squeeze, really, an economic squeeze from potential policy in Germany and other European states for Nord Stream and this military squeeze uh, and tightening of the noose from Russia. Yes, and it could could mean the first time since the Second World War we will have quite a large-scale conflict in this part of Europe, very, very close to us. Now, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We're not obliged to, uh, to go and fight for Ukraine. That's unlikely. Ukraine will have to defend itself. But certainly Ukraine will be asking its friends, and Britain is a very close ally of Ukraine, will be asking its friends you know, for help, for, for equipment and, and for, for more training as how they could possibly resist this. But we're certainly at the moment looking at a very few, a very few, very tense weeks. Uh, and just looking back on your time as Defence Secretary and the briefings that you may still occasionally get, how do you think the forces do match up? Clearly, Russia is overwhelming, 100,000 troops, but is there a spirit for a a fight in Ukraine or is it an atmosphere of worry and and concern that they will be overrun? The the, the eastern side of Ukraine has a lot of Russian speakers in it and has traditionally been more pro-Russian than the West. But the effect of this civil war, the invasion eight years ago and the civil war since, has actually been to stiffen up Ukraine. It's been to strengthen uh, civic society in Ukraine and uh, to make Ukrainians prouder of their own uh, their own country. So there's no doubt Ukraine will fight. But there are you know there are Russian tanks and troops now on the border between Belarus and Ukraine. A substantial uh, uh, Russian uh, 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 troop movements along the east here, down to the railhead at. Uh, uh, Radansk and um, Russia, of course, can now take troops directly across uh, into Crimea. So Ukraine is pretty well encircled now by Russian troops and heavy Russian army armor. So it's uh, you know it's not going to be an even fight. Sir Michael, thank you very much. That was Sir Michael Fallon who talked to me last week. Uh, Julian Jessup, uh, one of the. UK's most respected independent economists. Uh, the stuff that Michael was talking about in that interview is still obviously very current today. Now, the economy is being hit by this tension in Eastern Europe, isn't it? How do you see the assessment of that and the impact of higher gas prices that have resulted? Yeah, well, I think, obviously, Michael Fallon made loads of good points. Uh, normally, 
I wouldn't worry too much about geopolitical risks. I mean, these risks are always with us. If, if it's not Russia, it's something in the Middle East or mm. uh, tensions between China and Taiwan. But but this crisis is a bit different because there's an obvious way in which it has direct impact on the UK economy through higher energy prices. And and given that people are already struggling with their bills, in fact, of course, not just people but also businesses. If if the crisis does blow up, then you know there's a significant shortage of uh, gas in particular from Russia as a result, then that's going to push energy bills even higher. And given that many people are already struggling with the cost of living crisis, this could be you know, a really big headwind for the economy this year. Uh, on top of that, we've got the self-inflicted headwind of, of the tax increases that the, the Chancellor is published. Now, um, he's not to blame for the cost of living crisis. That's a global phenomenon. There's probably more he can do to alleviate that. But he's certainly to blame for, for talk of raising taxes. And I hope that that's something he corrects sooner rather than later. Well, uh, yes, you've written about this, and it's a very good article, by the way. If you want to look at uh, Julian's work, you can see it on his website. Plain, look at Plain Speaking Economics, really good. You've got an article, uh, Time to Ditch the National Insurance Hike. Now, I, I've got to say, I agree with a lot of what you've written in this article, but let's just look at the counterpoint. Um, this uh, tax increase that's coming down the line in uh, April, the government would argue that it is actually needed because their costs are going up. And they're going up for two reasons. One is inflation, and a lot of the borrowing is based on inflation. So they're not borrowing as much, but it costs more to borrow. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, the borrowing costs um, have an impact on the general confidence levels in the government's ability to run its public sector. Mm. Well, I'm actually relatively relaxed about those points. I mean, first of all, Yes, inflation is higher than, than expected, and that's pushing up the cost of servicing government debt, particularly that part of the debt that's directly linked to what's happening to uh, the RPI inflation index. But um, the reason why inflation is picking up is that the economy is, is doing better than expected. And the combination of you know stronger growth in, in incomes, uh, wages and profits, um, plus the, the impact of you know, higher spending is actually boosting tax receipts. So, so overall, actually, the recent government borrowing numbers have been better than anticipated. So, you know, we borrowed something like 13 billion less than we thought so far uh, in this financial year. And I think that number is actually going to continue to increase. So there's sort of growth dividend there that the government can use. So rather than having to, to raise taxes to, to fill the gap in the public finances, I think it should be focusing on boosting growth. And of course, raising taxes, although it might raise a bit more tax from those taxes that you increase, uh, might simply dampen the economy overall and actually end up costing you more money than you get from those tax increases themselves. So um, I think a good rule for, for chancellors like, like doctors is, is first do no harm. And I think there's no immediate need to be raising taxes now. Well, the other point, though, is that this cost of the debt, which you have addressed, it was, it was the cost of servicing the debt has grown by almost the, the same amount as the extra taxes from the growth. So it's a bit new. Surely we've got to we've got to get ahead of it at some stage. Mm. It can't be for for never and never, can it? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's certainly true that the the cost of servicing debt has has jumped, um, but actually most of the increase in spending that's been driving up the numbers recently has been either on things like COVID testing, which mm. hopefully is is a temporary spend. Um, the UK, it does look like we're going to be the first major economy to emerge from the pandemic, so that element of spending will drop off. And also related things. So we've spent a lot more, for example, on subsidies to the rail industry because nobody is travelling. But as the economy opens up again, then that part of spending will fall away as well. So you're absolutely right. We're probably going to end up paying more on debt interest than we would otherwise have done. But other forms of spending will fall off. 
And the reason why debt interest is going up is because the economy is recovering and that produces benefits on the revenue side as well. Now, this uh, recovering from COVID uh, point you make, uh, I, I run a small business in the north of England. It's a PR firm and a marketing firm. And I always say that that is the kind of firm that's at the front end of any recovery. Also, it's first into a recession, by the way. Uh, and our phones have been ringing because people are ready now to start marketing their services again. There, there is a, an anticipation of the uh, first out of COVID effect getting the economy going. Now, the government, though, always, and the, the data always looks in the rearview mirror, doesn't it? The, mm. There's, an, you know, OBR tries to predict, but all the data that people are going to see uh, reported will be about December's Christmas sales, and then it'll be about January's uh, income tax receipts at the end of January. Do you think that that is a fair assessment and that economists like you need to help frame it so that it's a little bit more future looking? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's important not just to look at the, the latest hard numbers. For example, the, the retail sales figures for December were, were very weak, um, but to look at forward looking surveys. Uh, and there's any number of them that you know suggest that businesses are increasingly confident about the future. And in particular, they're, they're much more willing to invest. And that, that that's really important. I mean, investment is of course, part of the economy is so where investment goes up, overall economic activity goes up. But it's also key to solving the, the productivity puzzle. You know, more companies invest, the higher productivity is. And it's also the best way to get real wages up. You know, if, if, if companies are, are more productive, they can afford to pay their staff more. So it's a really positive story for the economy. And the other thing that's going on, of course, is that the labour market is, is very strong. Now, that's not an unambiguous positive. If you're, if you're someone trying to find staff, it's a right pain. You have to pay higher wages and so on. But from the point of view of consumers who make up the bulk of the economy, they are starting to see their, their wages pick up. And that is helping in many cases, not all, though, but in many cases to offset higher prices as well. Um, and even if people's wages aren't going up, they're feeling more secure in their jobs or maybe they're willing to, to move to a new job that might be better paying. So the combination of a strong labour market, you know, optimistic businesses looking to invest more and the easing of the COVID pandemic means I think this will be another year where the UK economy does better than most people expect. We'll bring Ian in in a minute, but um, I want to ask you first about inflation itself. Uh, we run in the north of England, Recognition Helps organise uh, two shadow MPCs, one in Yorkshire and one in the northeast. And on both of those shadow MPCs, I find myself one of a minority that said we should have put interest rates up way before December. Uh, and uh, the impact of the resulting increased interest rate was muted because of that. Now, I'm no economist. What do you think about the way the bank is handling monetary policy and the, the dangers of inflation? Well, I think the, the Bank of England has made a serious mistake. It's underestimated the, the extent of inflationary pressure in the economy. I think it's partly because it's looking at the wrong things. I mean, there's a, there's a tendency always to look at whichever prices happen to be going up the most and finding some excuse why those prices can be ignored. But the, the bigger picture is that central banks, not just the Bank of England, but also the, the Federal Reserve in the US and the European Central Bank in Europe, have been printing enormous amounts of, of cheap money or free money over the last couple of years and pumping that into the economy. And you don't have to be a sort of old school monetarist to believe that inflation is caused by too much money chasing too few goods and services. So um, I think the surge in inflation, yes, it, it's been exacerbated by the global energy crisis and shortages of semiconductors and so on. But the root cause is that monetary policy has been too loose for too long. And I think although the Bank of England is starting to correct that mistake now, it's going to have to look, work a lot harder than what otherwise have done in the next few months to bring inflation back under control again. 
Sounds like we're in violent agreement, but it isn't the common view in business. I'll just put Ian on the, the, the screen and let's see what he thinks from uh, Boiler Plan UK. What is your view on interest rates? If you were on the shadow MPC, would you have voted to put them up last year? I mean, I think I think we have to start addressing interest rates when, when inflation is rising so rapidly. It's the only way we're going to kind of calm spending down, I think, a bit. But um, yeah, I mean, my, my specialist uh, subjects certainly don't lie with with the economy uh, I don't, you know julian is uh, as the, has that one cover i think Grim. right and one last thing before i move on to you properly ian what do you think the bank will actually do you said they have to bear down inflation more because people forget it's a cruel thief isn't it it steals your jobs and your savings yeah, yeah. um but Indeed. so what do you think julian the, the bank will actually have to do well well, it's a good it's a good way of looking at it. What do I think they should do? I think they should raise rates aggressively now and mm. start to sell back some of the assets that they bought as part of the policy of quantitative easing. So you raise the price of money and also reduce the amount of money in circulation. Um, now, that would be painful in the short term, but I think it sends a clear signal that they're serious about getting inflation down. Uh, that will reduce inflation expectations in the economy and prevent the need to do even more at some point in the future. So I think basically they need to shock the markets mm, now mm. by raising rates. I don't think they'll do that, though. I think they might just nudge up rates by another quarter point mm. in, in February. Um, but that's already expected by the markets. That won't really surprise anybody. So it won't have that long-term impact that I think is required. No pain, no gain. That's think- one way of looking at it. Alternatively, a stitch in time saves nine. I think the stitch in time now is a bigger rate increase now rather than having to do a lot more in future. Okay. Ian, let's bring you in. Your business installs boilers everywhere. You've got a team of 100 or so engineers around the country doing this. The economy is yeah. obviously very important to this, but so are gas prices. So is the, so is the pressure we started talking about with Sir Michael Fallon. Uh, how do you see your business prospects in the year ahead, given the market that you're operating in? Well, undoubtedly, um, any, any pain uh, in consumers' pockets is going to mean to have less, less money for spending. And then, you know, if Russia does... In, uh, invade the Ukraine, then undoubtedly that's going to affect energy prices and it's going to affect uh, consumers' ability to spend. What we do, uh, we are an essential service. People need heating and they need they need uh, their boiler to provide the heating and hot water. However, they've got to be able to pay for that. Um, and you know, there's no there's there's no doubt at all that if there was if there was an invasion by um, by Russia on the Ukraine, then the energy prices would would rise. And um, and it, it may affect it may affect our business. What are you doing about uh, the general uh, impact of high gas and uh, energy prices? What products are you bringing to the market that offset them or help customers offset them? So, I mean, just a replacement gas boiler will reduce uh, customers' energy bills by twenty to thirty percent. If you layer in some smart controls, you can improve that again, depending on the type of system that they're operating now, but. I think the quicker that we migrate in the UK to a more sustainable energy source, um, such as hydrogen, which, which you know, if we could become um, our, you know, masters of our own destiny and a bit more self-sufficient with our energy and protect against uh, price hikes, that that's a better way to, to solve um, the, the, the any energy crisis than than maybe um, replacing, um, you know, appliances in in your home. Ian, you heard what Julian said, and you were one of the business people who attended Sir Michael Fallon's uh, uh, Global Explainer when he was talking about the economy and its impact on Russia. He also talked about Taiwan and the general economy. In your business plans going forward, do do any of these siren noises 
or in the case of Julian, his optimistic noises, uh, give you uh, pause for thought and to change your plans going forward? Um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on our growth curve uh, that, that, that we've been on for the last five years. I think going back to what Julian was saying and, and, and maybe touching on, I think no government wants to stop quantitative easing and wants to stop printing money. But I think one of them at some point is going to have to do that. We've got to part. We've got to stop the train on this, on this, on this money printing, and and we've got to. Go, we're going to have to go through some austere measures to to get ourselves back on on track and and bring uh, bring spending down. But I mean, our business plans, uh, our growth, our growth will will may be affected in terms of gas, but that also might accelerate our growth as people may look to for alternative um, um, energy. Uh, so heating, heating um, technologies such as air source heat pumps, um, air source heat pumps, I think, are going to play a big part in in in, um, in our migration towards net zero over the next five to ten years. I think hydrogen would would be even better for for the overall economy and certainly for the consumer. It would be cheaper to install the the, the, the technologies than, than than it would certainly for air source. But uh, yeah, I, I, our growth our growth plans could be accelerated if 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 there's a a bigger transition, quicker transition towards air source or other heating technologies. Okay, well, Ian, I'll leave it there. This economic section, I'll just give the last word to Julian. You've heard what Ian had to say. We've rounded it all off. You obviously remain optimistic. I suppose it's convincing the government to follow your line and maybe postpone or ditch the first part of this national insurance hike. As you said, it is a two-part tax rise, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And I think that there's a big debate to be had about the longer term need for more funding for health and social care. But um, that's not really the debate now. The debate now is whether or not you need to raise national insurance contributions to fix the the backlog of NHS work. And I think that's a one off cost that you can be used to. You can pay that off using the growth dividend or, or even add to a bit more borrowing in the short term if necessary. You don't need to raise taxes to fix that. Well, Ian and Julian, thank you for joining us in this section. We're going to turn to something else now. Thank you very much. Uh, Anthony Chadwick, uh, he is the uh, founder and chief visionary officer for Alphavet International. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Uh, Tell us all about your business and how it started and what you actually do. Well, I'm a veterinary surgeon qualified a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But uh, I I was working in practice and just finding it very difficult to do my continuing education. We have to do that as part of our regulatory uh, concerns with the Royal College. And I went to a conference where they were talking about webinars. This was 12 years ago. And I just thought, wow, this is a, this would be a great way to bring training into the home, make it easier for us to do it. Often we're working till quite late at our surgeries. And then we often have to jump in the car and drive to Manchester or, or Preston or wherever. to to get our training and then of course by the time we got home we were exhausted and then back on the treadmill the next day so by taking the training online um we really were able to grow very quickly because this was i think at the point where the technology was good enough that it would allow people to come on and get a good experience and also the technology was cheap enough that you could you could start running a a sort of webinar-based business of course I, I rather cheekily say now that, you know, we've been preparing for the pandemic for the last 12 years. We just didn't realize. But things like Zoom, which have become ever so popular over the last two years, is technology we've been using for the last six or seven. Uh, unfortunately, I, I never bought shares in Zoom, which is uh, <laughs> probably the only mistake. But there we go. I think it was a 
a 30-fold increase in customers last year, which isn't which is going some, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. And, and you were still an outrider there. You were out there of, in the vanguard of, of using this modern technology for improving the productivity of your sector, the sector of veterinary practices. Because continued professional development for all professionals is very, very important. And you take your dog along to the vets and you expect them to know and be able to diagnose using the latest uh, knowledge, don't you? Exactly. And, and I think, you know, as a country, we're, we're obviously one of the leading countries in the world and, and a leading veterinary nation. And, and the beauty about digitalizing your business is that you also democratize it. So you make that learning available to vets in countries, developing countries as well. They become better vets, they become more confident vets. And the reason I became a vet in the first place was to improve animal welfare and, and obviously human uh, welfare and, and um, you know, their own happiness. We all know, you know, it's lovely to have a pet, but also economically, you know, our farms and so on. So we do webinars across all species. And I think it's it's great to see that impact that we've been able to have globally. Um, we've just run our virtual conference. Last week, we had over 10,000 vets register from, I think it was over 150 countries. So once you are sort of certainly an online business, you can very quickly go global because, of course, the Internet doesn't really recognise the boundaries or particularly uh, be taxed at the moment in the way that maybe a, a national business will be. So that's one for Julian to perhaps chat about. And, and tell me about um, the co how you're codifying these courses. If, if, if somebody has attended one of your webinars, are they able to put it down as legitimate CPD? Is it, does it count towards their, their body of work? Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, 12 years ago, I walked around one of our small animal conferences and told some of the companies that they should be doing webinars. And they said, what's a webinar? And mm. um, 12 years later, it's the most common way that vets learn, in, in certainly in the UK. So um, it's made it very convenient. The Royal College is, is actually a very good regulator because I think it's quite laissez-faire. Their attitude is that if people go to the training and it's rubbish, that company doesn't last very long. And actually the surveys that we do every year show that people find our quality the best in the market because if I want to get the best professor from UC Davis in California, I don't need to fly him to Liverpool to give that course, but I can actually just put him over the internet. And so we're, we're saving money. We're obviously also saving resources. So probably over the last 12 years, I've taken um, several million miles off the roads and the airways. And as a, an eco-warrior myself, you know, those sort of uh, changes are, are also very important. And we were recently uh, given green status by the investors in the environment uh, accreditation scheme Fantastic. which was uh, really satisfying the green one unlike most uh, uh, schemes that often go gold well you're not you wouldn't be surprised that with the investors in the environment the green status is their is their highest level Anthony my last question you've built this business it's obviously very successful has it taken you out of veterinary practice are you still able to practice yeah I I actually um, continue to practice I sold my practice um, after about 18 months, because the webinar vet was doing so well, and I needed to decide, was this going to be, you know, was I going to do the, the webinar thing? Or was I going to just completely concentrate on, on practice? I think trying to do everything is difficult, because everything then you end up doing mediocrely rather than than well. 
Uh, but I continued to do dermatology until about six years ago. And then we took on an investor and they suggested that I might be better spending my time in the business. So uh, over the last six years, I've just been purely involved with the business. Well, it's good to talk to you and, and, and hear about your success and the fact that you were pioneering. Ian, Julian, Anthony, thank you very much. And thank you to Michael Fallon as well. Uh, watch out for next week's Business Unmuted presented by Mike Hughes.